1 Peter chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the contact, conduct rather, of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that we get to study that which will outlive the heavens and the earth, Lord. And we're grateful, Lord, that your Holy Spirit takes your word and amplifies it in our hearts and in our minds and impresses upon us um, your direction for us and, and how we should live, Lord. Where else would we, go, would we go in this world to get instruction that's not tainted or that doesn't, isn't compromised and fully represents you? There's no place in this world we could go. So you knew our greatest need, Lord, of knowing you and, and having our, your word firmly placed in our lives to be a, um, a roadmap, so to speak, and, and a way that we can know you and a way that we can be directed by you and, and also to be brought into maturity. So we yield our, our hearts to you right now. We want to have our hearts pliable and ready to be taught, to be ready to be doers of your word, not hearers only. We pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the preeminence of your word and how great it is, Lord. We know that it's far greater than whatever that we could even imagine. Commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said, we're more than halfway through this great book of First Peter. We've been seeing Peter focus on two themes, and we'll see that continue through this book and also into the next book. And those two themes, as I've said over and over again, is eternity and practical holiness. And so we've seen that consistently up to this point, as we'll see as we continue. The occasion of this book is persecution. This, these Jewish believers have been scattered all over the, the Roman Empire at that time. They're experiencing great persecution under the Emperor Nero, who's going crazy. He's going out of his mind. He's, he's doing insane things uh, to believers at this point. And so uh, Peter's responding to this in, in their lives. They, they need this needed instruction right now because of what they're going through. Last week, Peter spoke of submitting ourselves to government authorities, that all of us should be subject to the, to the rulers that are in our lives, whether they're spiritual, whether they're civil, whether they're, um, as we'll see, marital. Uh, there's, there's authority that God has set up. And one of the ways that we experience uh, his holiness is when we obey him in obeying and submitting to government authorities. Because the Lord Jesus submitted to the Father. There's a... Um, there's a relationship even within the Trinity, we're told in Corinthians, where the, the, the head of Christ is the Father and so forth. So there is, submission is, is a great word. You know, we sometimes, uh, 
you know, because it's been abused, that we sometimes think it's a, it's a bad word, but it's not. So he, he talked about submitting ourselves to uh, government authorities, but also we saw him last week speak about submitting ourselves to employers. You know, for them it was the slave-master relationship with 40 million uh, slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, for our application, it's more submitting to employers and being the best employees that we can possibly be. So this practical holiness is, is carrying on uh, as we see through these verses in the area of submission. But uh, like I said, this week he focuses on submission in the context of marriage. And it's not just for wives. It's for both husbands and wives. All of us are called to submit to one another in, in the body of Christ. But for sure, in a marital relationship, there's mutual submission. That doesn't get as much press <laughs> uh, in the, our culture. They always want to focus on our biblical belief that man is the head of the home and, and, and so forth. Uh, they rarely ever talk about how man's role or the husband's role is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, or that there's a mutual submission going on at, all at the same time. So he's going to talk about this submission in, in, the, in our marital roles uh, and, it, and, it's, and how that expresses holiness in a very important way. And, and so, the, you know, as we see in Scripture, the Bible speaks of these marital roles all over the place. There's different passages, and we'll look at one that's very predominant. But God repeats himself. He has no problem repeating himself. You ever wonder why there's things over and over again in the Scriptures? He's not, wait, he's not going, well, you know, I need this Bible a little thicker. It's a little lean. So I need to say things over and over again to kind of make it more full and robust and uh, more well-rounded and so forth. So I'm going to add some filler. There's no filler. Sometimes we talk about in our culture that in food, there's no fillers. And, you know, there's no fillers in the Bible. It's all important. Every jot, every tittle, all scripture is given by inspiration. So when God says something over and over again, uh, we need to, to know what that is, of course. Uh, and we need to be reminded. I love studying the scriptures verse by verse through the entire Bible for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because we get the subject matter in the proportion in which God revealed it. So so often in some circles, all we hear about is holiness, or we hear about the, the supernatural or prophecy or whatever, because they're just talking, you know, on, on a lot of subjects that they have interest in, staying away from the ones they don't have interest in. But when you go through the whole Bible, you can't hide. You have to cover every verse. And so I'm thankful that we get to major on what God majors on. I'm thankful that we get to minor on what God minors on, at least in the proportion in which he re reveals it. So I want to look at a par parallel passage before we get into our verses. Hold your place here. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Obviously, in our passage, we're talking about what Peter has to say by the Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul says by the Spirit. And because the Spirit's the ultimate author, we see these things perfectly complement one another. And there is some overlap, but there is some distinction as well. Let's look at verse 22, begin at verse 22, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, that means to set apart, that he might set apart and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. I just quickly, in verse 29 there, notice he says he cherishes it. You're the church. He cherishes you. That's important to keep in mind. Maybe today you're here, you don't feel very cherished. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's, it's important, obviously, that we sense care and love from other people. But ultimately, if we are cherished by the Lord, that's the thing that, that is our anchor. So he cherishes us. Uh, and then he says in verse 30, We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The last verse there in verse 33 kind of sums everything up when he says, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God never tells a wife to, to agape or to have that supernatural Christian love to their husband, because that seems to, to happen more um, naturally, so to speak, as a, as a Christian wife. Uh, and, and we're, you know, he tells the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And so, he, and then of course, at the end, he says that she should respect her husband. Husbands, they desire respect. Wives, if you want to bless your husband, show him respect. And, and, if, and husbands, if you want to bless your wives, sacrificially do what's best for her, even at your own expense. That's the supreme definition of agape love, Christian agape love. To love, to do its best for the other person, even at your own expense. Sometimes you're going to get pushback in any, in any relationship where you're showing agape love. You're going to get fried a couple times. You're going to get, uh, you're not going to be appreciated. They're not going to treat what you're doing as what's best for them, but Agape love is doing what's best for someone even at your own expense. That doesn't come naturally for the husband. We naturally want to do what's best for ourselves. <laughs> you know, that's the flesh. And, and so we will take the path of least resistance, not always say and do what's appropriate for our wives or our families because we don't want to have to deal with the repercussions of that decision. And, and God says you need to do what's right for them just as Jesus does right for us and does what's best for us. And he did that even at his own expense with the cross. So a higher love does what's best even if they have to deal with whatever they have to deal with as, as a result of it. But the wives are told to respect their husbands. And, and that's what husbands need. They need that respect. Now, of course, they, it helps if you're respectable <laughs> or, or worthy of that respect. And that if you start loving your wife as Christ loved the church or aiming to by his grace and by his power, then the respect meter starts going through the roof. And so that will help you in that. But he doesn't say you only do it when they're respectable. He says you need to respect that. 
So this is a good parallel passage, and we'll maybe reference back to it a few times. Let's go back to 1 Peter 3. Now, Peter starts now by the Spirit, much the same way as, as Paul started. He starts with wives. And, and, and it's not that wives need more help than men. I mean, in our passage here, uh, there's six verses for, 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 for wives and one verse for, for men. That doesn't mean that men don't need just as much help at all. He's just dealing with another issue. It's a little different nuance than what Paul's dealing with in Ephesians 5. But one thing I do notice in both passages is that he speaks to each spouse to do their part, for them to do their own part. Are you listening? For them to do their own part. He doesn't say, husbands, get your wives to submit to you as to the Lord. He doesn't say to the husbands, I mean the wives rather, wives, get your husbands to love you as Christ loved the church. He doesn't do that. He's very wise. It's not by accident. He addresses them to do what their role is supposed to be, how it's supposed to be lived out. It's not by accident. Sometimes when I'm engaged in marital counseling, one of the things I try to get people to do is to get their focus off of what the other person's not doing so they can focus on what God's calling them to do. Because they're called to do what they're called to do despite what the other person does. And so when you think about marriage problems, marriage problems are selfishness problems. You notice that when you first get married. You realize, I'm pretty selfish. I didn't realize I had to have things a certain way. And I didn't realize I put myself first so much to all of a sudden another person's so close to you, they, they can see that and you can see that. So marriage problems are selfishness problems. And as for a Christian, selfishness problems are lordship problems. So it all goes back to our relationship with God. There are people that come in, they will lay out a, a, a certain situation, they'll think we're going to be in months of counseling. I go over what the Bible says and talk about their relationship with the Lord and whether or not they're going to obey what God says to do, regardless of what the other person does. And it's amazing. I, I don't think I've ever gone past three appointments with people. And usually the last one is like a celebration one. Because God can do so much with so little as we obey him in our calling related to what he's called us to do in the marriage based on our relationship with him despite what the other person's doing. And when the other person starts seeing us really working on our own role, it gets their attention, especially when they know how hard it is for us to do our own role and how much we haven't focused on doing our own role and been focusing on policing their role. So God's so wise, isn't he? How he talks about right to the people to do what they're called to do. He is so wise. If we just do what he says to do, because he invented marriage. It's his idea. He knows a little bit about how it should function. And so we need to take his wisdom. And another point is that God doesn't talk a lot about, in terms of you know, pure verses in the New Testament about marriage, because he talks a lot about love. He talks a lot about the fruit of the Spirit. And so if I'm growing as a Christian and I have the fruit of the Spirit coming out of my life and I have self-control coming out of my life that he's producing, where's their selfishness? And if there's no selfishness, there's no marital problems, you know? So it, it, it in the, I mean, significant issues, of course. There's always going to be little, mm, 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 little things, you know, here and there. But if you're trying to outserve one another and being the servant and putting the other, need, other people's needs first, then it's very difficult. You can try as hard as you, you, you might to have, to have marital problems, but I mean, I've never had a person come in and say, I can't take it anymore. I want a divorce. My wife is 
respecting me too much. She's submitting to my leadership too much. Uh, she's, she's serving me too much. I just, I'm done. Can't take it. I've never seen, I've, I've never seen a, a wife come in. He's loving me too much as Christ loved the church. I'm through. I'm done. Never seen that happen. So, but what's that require? It goes beyond our natural resources. It goes into his resources because nobody knows our selfishness like our spouse. No one does. And we're, they're, they're seeing us at our weakest, at our, at our the poor, that we're the most carnal at times. And so it requires a supernatural power by the Spirit and, and love for the Lord and, and fear of, of Him and, his, and the calling on our lives and our roles to be able to do that well. So he starts with wives and he says, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Again, we've, submission is not a bad word in the New Testament. God is 100% for godly submission. As I mentioned last week, submission is not something that someone demands of you or takes from you. Submission is something you offer to somebody. And for a Christian, it's respecting how God has set things up and you want to obey him because of your relationship with him and that he's your Lord and you want to obey what he says to do. So you offer that over to somebody. So as a wife, you're offering that over to your husband and saying, I give you that place because I fear God. I mean, I have reverence for God, and I know what, what he says in his word. And so I'm going to do that as an expression of my love and my worship to him. And, and he'll honor that every single time. I realize that there's a lot of diversity even in this room. Some of you haven't, aren't married. Some of you are waiting to be married. Some of you maybe have the gift of celibacy, and you, you're not going to be married. Or you've been divorced, or you're a widow, or you're a widower. There's a lot of different, I realize that. But there's, God can, these are principles that are true no matter what relationship we find ourselves in, of being appropriate with other people. Or maybe God wants to pre- uh, prepare you to be a godly spouse. Sometimes I talk to young people and they're like, I want a godly spouse. I want to, let's just use the example of a, of a guy. I want a godly wife. I want her to be so spiritual. I want her to be so godly. I want her to be just a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I ask him, would she, would that kind of young lady want you? Well, I haven't really thought that through yet. Well, if you're, if you're not that, then what makes you think a godly woman would want? He goes, oh yeah, I better, better think this through. So, so, so often he prepares us so far in advance for that person. And we, he knows we're not that person yet that he wants us to be for the person that he wants to bless us with. And so he's on, he takes the long approach. And, and we, we're impatient at times and you know, God helps us through all that. So I recognize there's all different people here, but God has his purposes for each one of us. The first thing we need to recognize related to submission, especially when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, is that we need to make sure that we're clear that God views every the husband and the wife as equal they're not the husband is not more valuable he's not more intelligent that's for sure he's not more gifted he's not more he's not better in any way it's just that within a marriage there needs to be order God's a God of order and anything as as it's been said anything with two heads is a beast (laughs) and he knows that so there's got to be someone that that has the leadership and Christ is very comfortable within even the trinity having the father have a higher position. And we, it's hard for us to comprehend how that can happen. 
But within the Godhead, there's, there's this hierarchical uh, relationship that they have. But so if, if he's okay with, if Jesus is okay with submission, we need to be okay with submission as well. And so some of us, maybe you're a, a wife here that you've been abused in, in, in a role of submission. And God hates that more than you do. The solution is to not give up submitting, but the solution is to, uh, you know, do it in a godly way and, and obviously pray for your husband or pray for, um, you know, the situation in a way that would be appropriate. So, uh, you know, I just want to make sure we understand that there's equal value, but, but a higher role in terms of, of, of leadership. And God set the, that, those things up that way on purpose. Now he continues in verse 1, where he says that even if some of you do not obey the word, they, who's they? The husbands, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now Peter is addressing a very specific situation here. Notice he describes a certain kind of husband. He says in the verse, who do not obey the word. And likely this is Peter's way of describing an unbeliever. Unbelievers don't obey the word of God. But he also could be talking about, or in addition to, he could be talking about a man that knows the Lord, but is backslidden or or currently in willful disobedience to the Lord. But it's likely talking about an unbelieving husband, because notice the word one there, W-O-N, towards the end of the verse, may be one. That's talking about someone that is one in terms of salvation. They're, They're a prize that God wins, that God enjoys after he gets them. And, and that's, that's how he sees us. So, but notice how it happens. Without a word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. I know many Christian wives over the years who have had unbelieving husbands. I think of one that was uh, in the office there at Calvary Chapel Modesto, and I think she prayed for a husband for 15 or 20 years and was standing strong, honoring the Lord in that role. And she stood on this verse that she would be an example to her husband. And he eventually came to know Christ. And, and then he passed away soon after that, but he came to know Christ right before he went to be with the Lord. And so I've, I've talked to many wives, and they get saved, because obviously as believers, we're not called to marry unbelievers. That's a no-no. We're not supposed to be unequally yoked. But some of us get, are already married. We've received Christ, and then we realize we have an, un, uh, you know, an unsaved spouse. And so we know that they need to be saved. And, and so, you know, or we have a, a husband that doesn't, isn't currently walking with the Lord. And, and so as you might expect, and I don't pretend to know what that feels like, especially if you're in that situation. But it could obviously very frustrating. You want to be together. You want to have that unity. You see other couples that are in that unity. And you long for it. I totally can, you know, imagine, try to imagine what that would be like. And so, as we've seen, as we've seen in chapter 2, he's saying, let your actions do the talking. He's already said that. He said, those that slander you will be silenced by your good works. We just saw that a a week or two ago. So, he's saying that consistently even into this chapter. So, he's saying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, let those be your little evangelists in the marital relationship. Let what comes out of your life that only God can produce do the evangelizing. 
And that's why he says, without a word. You know, talking is a strength that women have. I don't, I'm not making fun of them. I'm serious. They have a strength of knowing how to talk. And they know how to communicate. That's one of the things that they, they are examples to us in, of how to communicate well. And they're very perceptive. They sense things men are oblivious to. Come home and your wife says, did you notice this, this? No, I, what are you talking? There's no way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I sense that. They have this little discernment thing that goes off. They sense things. They have a strength of communication. They can perceive things. And so because of that gift that they have, that's one of the things as husbands we need to grow in is learning how to communicate and share our feelings. You know, we come home from work. How was your day today? Good. What happened today? Not much. Um, you know, did, did you experience anything out of the ordinary today? Not really. You know, it's just like, and they're just going, give me something. Those of you that aren't married and you're a man here today, they want to know what's going on inside you. They want to know specifics. One of the ways you can show your wife agape love is to, is to be specific with what's going on inside of you. And, and expressing that. And you're not used to doing that. You're, but we do have emotions. We do have needs. We do have things that we need to share at times. But it's always never going to be enough for our wives. Whenever, whenever you think that you've communicated enough with your wife, you're just getting started. You know? And so that's one of the ways that we can show love. But because women are so good at communication, the deception is that if they have a spouse that doesn't know the Lord or is in willful disobedience, they're thinking, if I just say the right thing, a light will go on. And it's true for any of us that we're sharing our faith, we're trying to minister to someone, and we don't realize that the Lord's working in that situation quite apart from anything that we're saying or doing. And we just say, if I just have the right, you ever done that with your sharing your faith? If I just say the right thing, something's going to happen. And, and, and so that's what they can think when they're frustrated and they're desperate. Maybe it's gone on for years where their husband hasn't walked with the Lord or is, doesn't know the Lord. And they're, they're just, I just say the, the right thing. And so wives can kind of cross the line and go into, and all of us can, but I mean, especially in this situation where they feel, I just need to say the right thing. I just need to talk them into it. And before you know it, they can be starting to nag and they're, you know, engaged in a nag, you know, enagulism instead of evangelism you know and they're just like they're finding tracks in their underwear drawer and you know they open up their yogurt and there's a little piece of the scripture of John three sixteen, or there's I mean everywhere they go there's these and they're just thinking if I just say it enough and if I just say it the right way then they're going to get saved but God knows a better way and that's what these verses are telling us take this wisdom if you're in that situation God knows a better way that if you are the most the godliest wife or if you're a husband here and your wife doesn't know the Lord, be the godliest, godliest spouse you can possibly be, that that godliness, God knows, is the most potent attractant that exists. It just pulls people in. That's why sinners love to be around Jesus, because he was so attractive in his character and who he was and his love and how he expressed concern for people, and he really cared. And so... That's a good reminder for us as well, that we need to be patient and just be a godly example, especially when they know our past. They know how we used to be, and they know that when they said something inappropriate to us or kind of criticized us where they shouldn't have, where you might have been throwing shoes or you might have been, you know, taking swings or doing the silent treatment for two weeks or, or, or not cooking dinner, have them sleep on the couch and make them suffer and all that, and you're not doing any of those things anymore. 
And you're turning the other cheek and you're blessing. You know, the whole thing of, you know, love your enemies, that can be within your very home. (laughs) And if we're supposed to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us, how much more should we do it in our home with our spouses? But obviously that's supernatural. That takes supernatural power that we don't possess in ourselves. None of us do. So we have to go to him, get that strength, get that perspective, get that, get that um, power from, from him and perspective from his word to be able to do that in a consistent uh, uh, manner. Now he gets more specific in verse 2. He says, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That word observe is a very specific word that, communi- that was used to communicate people observing uh, sports. Now, this is very relevant related to husbands and wives because husbands are really good at watching sports so often and we can tune out the world, can shut them out, not on purpose uh, necessarily, but she's talking, talking, talking and huh? You know, I mean, you've been going for 20 minutes. You've been saying, yeah, honey, yes, yes. And you weren't even listening and we we can observe other things so perfectly. And, and what he's saying here is that what this word that's been used to describe people observing sporting events, he will observe in your life those things that are not outward, that are inward, that are Christ-like, that, that will actually bring him into a relationship with God. And he says, you're chaste, that means you're, you're pure, you're holy conduct accompanied by fear fear of what this reverence for his his role in the marriage reverence for his leadership that's what it's talking about here when they observe that when they see it when they're a spectator and sometimes it takes years and years and years but this is what God says this is what works now that doesn't mean you never open your mouth don't misunderstand me faith still comes by hearing the gospel still has to be preached right but once they know the gospel they're really looking at our lives. And that's true for any of us as believers. Once you let the cat out of the bag and they know you're a believer, you're under a spotlight. That's true for our spouse. And they see you in so many different contexts that you have so many different opportunities to, 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 fa- to fail and to fall. When they see that difference in your life, it makes a massive difference. But the Spirit is going to show you at times still, open your mouth now. Share. But so much of that should be... Uh, after we've lived a certain way. Now this nagging and this being contentious, the scripture has a lot to say about a contentious wife. Let me read some of it to you. Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.19, better to dwell in the wilderness (laughs) than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 27.15, a continual dripping on a very rainy day, and a contentious woman are alike. Wow. Now, obviously, that speaks to all of us. We shouldn't be contentious. But when, when with, related to a woman's best uh, weapon, so to speak, or best tool is talking. And when you're trying to make something happen, again, we're a very lousy Holy Spirit. <laughs> and we're trying to make something happen and maybe we're doing it in a pressure tactic way, it, it, it becomes contentious. And, it are, and what, what do we see in, our, in the husbands when we do that? They shut down. It's like they're powering off. <laughs> shut down, don't talk. That's not the wife's response. That, that's never what they usually want to do. 
But it, the husbands will shut down. And so he just needs to see an example, just like we all need to see an example. We need to see the real deal. We need to see the authentic Christian that loves God, that lives a different kind of life. And it's true even in the home. Next, Peter focuses on not putting an overemphasis on the outward appearance in verse 3. He says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. So this word adornment here, it's the word cosmos. And so it means to order something, because the universe in this world are ordered by the Lord. So that's where that word came from. It's the word that they got the word cosmetics from. So women, you may say, yeah, that's true. In the morning, I need to put things in order. So I use cosmetics uh, there. But he's saying there's an order to your outward appearance, which is fine, but notice the word merely. That's our key word for verse three. Merely. Don't let your adornment be merely outward arranging and so forth gives the example he's not speaking against those things some churches unfortunately say you can't arrange your hair they can't you can't wear gold uh it's a bling this is a bling free environment you know um they you can't wear fine apparel all that he's not saying that the word merely says don't focus solely on those outward things but he does say there should be an adornment there should be an order because he because he doesn't say you shouldn't do it at all he said there should be an adornment but it's inward adornment it's an inward order that happens that only God produces in our lives. And I think, and this is, I was so surprised to not really see anyone focus on this and me studying this passage. But haven't, couldn't you think that a, that, a, that a wife would be wanting to draw her husband to herself related to the Lord by her outward appearance? He's saying don't do that. Because this, this outward situation here is not independent of what he's talking about. He's saying, don't trust in the outward anything for your husband to come to know Christ or to, to repent or to get right. You can't, you can't make the outward into something that God never intended to be. He intended the inward there to be something that uh, draws people in. So he says in verse 4, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is very precious in the sight of God. There's a hidden person inside of us, the internal person that God shapes through our worship of him and our development in him. And he says, let that be the thing that's adorned. Let that be the thing that's ordered in a way to where your husband is drawn in. I remember when I first came to know the Lord, I was 20. You know, it's hard to get a 20-year-old young guy to do anything that's profitable. Uh, and, you know, I was courting my wife, Sandy, before we were married there. And I had never known a tra- uh, being, that you could even be attracted to godliness because I'd never even known godliness before that. And she was beautiful and still is beautiful and all that, but I was also attracted to her godliness. And she would come up in the youth group and she would, at some, sometimes she would sing up there and I it was so hard for me to focus on the Lord at all because all I was wanted to look at was her singing and her godliness and how she was worshiping I was so attracted to that and 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 that's what really drew me in ways that I hadn't expected to be drawn to her I was very drawn to her physically trust me but I was I surprised me that I was drawn so much to her in a spiritual way but it was because of what was inside and notice he says it's incorruptible outward beauty over time gets corrupted 
As you get older, you don't start looking better, like, you know, better as a spouse. You start looking like your spouse, you know, you start like, there's really not a difference between us, is there? Uh, you know, but, you know, you, 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 so all that goes. But what's so great is that there's no age restraints to inward beauty, is there? You, that can get greater and greater and greater. You could be 90 years old. You know, Billy Graham just celebrated 95 years. That man is beautiful inside as he ever was and, and more than he ever was in previous years. That's still growing. That's still, so he says, it can't be corrupted. Ladies, you're on a, and men too, we're, we're on a, a, a futile endeavor to try to beat the system, but we're, we're getting older. And, and so that outward is, is going, is being corrupted, but inwardly, that beauty, notice he uses the word beauty. That beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in the sight of God. When you're focused on your outward beauty, you're focused on the sight of who? Those that are without, right? But your your inward beauty is is noticeable and discerned by those from without. But more importantly, look at the end of verse 4, it's in the sight of God. God sees that. God enjoys our outward beauty too. But, because you'd like it when your kids look good, you know. But the inward beauty, that which is going to go on beyond our life, into our new body. All these things are going to continue. They're incorruptible. Those things are very precious. Notice he says very precious, not just precious, very precious in God's sight. So what does it mean to have gentleness and a quiet spirit? It means that you are in submission to God and to your role within that marriage. It means that you have the fruit of the spirit of self-control coming forth from your life. You take the lesser seat. You are in a posture of humility. You're submitted to leadership. You're there as a servant. And your husband, hopefully, is growing in his servant's heart towards you and loving you as Christ loved the church. But you're, you say what's appropriate. You do what's appropriate. You're not putting yourself in the forefront of everything. You're not grandstanding or you're not uh, you know, showcasing yourself in your life. You're deflecting, you're deflecting attention on yourself. You're putting your attention on the Lord. You have that self-control. That's beautiful when that's found in, in, a, in, a, in a woman or anybody. And that's what's attractive to someone that is walking in disobedience uh, to God. So it's beautiful what he says there in verse 4. Now he continues, he says, For in this matter, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. So he says, you're Jews, you're Jewish believers, you have this heritage. Sarah is is in your lineage, so to speak, in your spiritual lineage. And this is not something new God's asking you to do. This has been going on all, all the way from the beginning. And so he says, just like those women, notice he says, who trusted in God. Why is that, why is that appropriate? Because when you're in submission to someone else, you're doing it as an expression of trusting in God, that he knows what he's doing and how he set things up. He's going to take care of you. If, even if your husband makes a bad decision and you're submitting to that bad decision, I'm not, t- I'm not talking about against God's word. I'm talking about just an error. God's still going to bless you. How many bad decisions did Abraham make? He made some pretty bad decisions. And Sarah was walking in submission to those bad submissions, and God protected her and still blessed her. Even with that, he's big enough to make up for your husband's mistakes. So we need to have that tucked away in our hearts. But notice they adorned themselves, but they did it by being submissive to their own husbands. 
And he gives an example. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I mean, I'm not advocating that you, you know. I mean, that could be enticing for a man. Hey, you know, have you tried that title? Um, but I'm not advocating that. Uh, you know, I mean, you can if you want to. But it's really the, the, the heart posture of, of the wife in submission to her husband I'm joking, I'm not advocating calling your husband Lord. Whose daughters you are, that was important to them, being Jewish, daughters of Sarah, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror, any fear of any repercussions of doing what's right in the context of submitting to your husband. Now he gets to husbands, we get one verse, even though we read other verses, we get one verse here, which is still significant. Husbands, now notice he's talking to husbands to do their role. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that is their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So he tells them to dwell with them with understanding. What what does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to understand that our tendency or our default setting, so to speak, would be to dwell with them with misunderstanding. I mean, he wouldn't have to tell us to dwell with, with them with understanding if we didn't have need of further enlightenment. How many wives are saying amen right now? You know, we don't get it. We're far behind where we think we are many times in understanding where they're coming from. And it takes time. I'm still learning about my wife after almost 20 years. It takes time to learn and understand her. Listen, You can't fully love her as Christ would have you love her if you don't understand her. Because to understand her is to understand her needs. You can't meet needs you don't understand exist or you don't know that they exist. So it takes some time and it takes some probing. It takes some asking. It takes some messing up. Oops, well, I learned that one. I've been down that road before. I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. But it's learning their needs, what they care about, what they need. Sometimes the Lord will give you understanding of what they need that, that, he, that he hasn't revealed to them yet and vice versa and so you know dwelling with them with understanding is understanding what they truly need what they truly what God wants them to to know and to to be able to bless them and serve them and treat them like the treasure that they are and he says that in the next part of the verse giving honor to the wife if you're a husband here do you honor your wife do you speak about her in a negative light do you put her first do you treat her like the queen that she is? I, I fall short with that. I don't think we're all growing in that. But God wants us to recognize they are a treasure. Man, you know you married up. You know that you married, you got a wife far greater than you deserve. I haven't met a husband yet that, that, that couldn't say that legitimately if they were being honest. So we have this beautiful treasure that God has blessed us with and we need to honor them and he, look, notice he says, as to the weaker vessel. What does that mean? I believe that's talking about physically. For the most part, men are stronger physically than women. I've seen some exceptions to that. I've, you know, but for the most part, generally speaking, they are the weaker vessel. And sometimes that can mean different things for different women. But that's part of understanding them. Do we understand how they're, how they're weak in certain areas? We need to serve them and compensate for that. However they're weak, we need to compensate and die to ourselves, get our focus off ourselves and onto them, and serve them in the way that they have need. And he says, as being heirs together, we're not just, the men are just not 
the only heirs to salvation and all that God is blessing us with with his inheritance, but we are together. We can't live like our wives are a roommate. We're together with them. We're going through life together. We have a calling that's commensurate with one another, that, that complement one another. We're a team. And, and we, it's so easy for us to be so task-oriented. I do my job. I come home. The, the, the family's there. And, you know, she's just there to serve me or to make my life easier. That's, that's not the picture here that God paints. We are heirs together of the grace of God. And then as he says at the end of verse 7, that your prayers may not be hindered. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it can mean when you're walking in the flesh and not doing what you're supposed to be doing, how effective is your prayer life? You ever gotten an argument with your wife and it gets kind of heated and then you have dinner and then you're the one that's going to pray over the meal? It can be kind of challenging at times. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think God sees everything and he sees how we're treating our wives and, and how our wives are treating us. And I think it matters to him so much that it gets in the way of what we're asking for. That he's, you know, we're not being faithful with what he's given us as being a good manager of what he's given us. And so he says, okay, then you're on, you're, there's the pause button <laughs> right now. You need to focus on that and what you're asking for and what you're requesting of me. You know, I, I want this to be dealt with first. It very well could be uh, right along those lines. So remember, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, the marriage relationship is a picture, and it's the strongest picture he has in this world, of the church's relationship to Christ. Our children are watching that relationship unbelievers, neighbors, relatives, friends are watching that relationship. They're coming to conclusions about our relationship with him and the validity of who he is based on how we live our lives. There's extreme uh, uh, consequences to how that marital relationship, uh, what that looks like. And he wants it to, to, to represent him well. And notice, this is still in the context of persecution. This is still in the context of suffering and hardship and tribulation. And he says, it doesn't matter that you're in that situation. You still need to be growing in personal holiness, even in your marital relationships. I need to be uh, allowed to work in your life appropriately. So it's very searching for us. He has a lot more to say to us. May he give us eyes to see and and ears to hear and a spirit that understands what he's saying to us to prepare us for marriage or to function appropriately in a marriage, or to be praying for others that we know that are in marriages that we see are, are problematic, and to maybe give counsel. You know, the older women are supposed to counsel the younger women, and so forth, and a lot of times we have a lot to say if we've been through some things in life, and so these things God can tuck into our hearts to prepare us for those things, and I'm thankful he's revealed it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the how full we are with just these seven verses. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hold anything back. You tell us the hard things, and you know our true condition. You're the only one that hasn't lied about us, saying that we're better than we are. We know that we're evil. You told us the truth. We know that we fall short. We know that we have a sinful nature that carries on past the day that we came to know you. And Lord, we thank you that your grace is greater than all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, and, and all the things that we know we're lacking, your grace is greater than all of those things. So I pray, Lord, that for those that aren't married yet, that you'd prepare them to be the most godly spouse they can possibly be, Lord, looking to your word to be that which uh, shapes them in that way. And we pray for those that 
are married here, Lord. We pray that we, our marriages would, would be the most beautiful, Christ-centered marriages that they could possibly be. Help us to work on our own relationship with you so that we can be living other-centered types of lives uh, in, in, in the context of our marriages, Lord. Help us to be an example to this world and everyone else that's watching of what a true marriage is supposed to look like and how that reflects our relationship with you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that selfishness would decrease and, and a desire to please you and honor you increases. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.